you don't have to be original. In fact, most ideas are not original, but what you have to figure out is can you offer something different that you can fill the need in the market that you've demonstrated better than somebody else. Hi guys, welcome to For the Love of Business podcast. Where we host honest conversations with the people behind the businesses you love. We think it's so important now more than ever to highlight what it takes to survive and thrive as an independent business. And highlight what it really takes to do what you love and love what you do. I'm your host, Carolyn. And I'm Cody. And this is For the Love of Business. Welcome, everybody. Hi, Cody. Good evening. Good evening. We're at Loveland Kitchen tonight. Our guest is Debbie Epstein Henry. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm so happy to have you so here. So thrilled to be here. Thank and you. Big customers of both you guys. So, how great to be across the table from oh, you. Oh, it's so cool. Thank you. We need that support. I'm just going to start with your intro because it's just so good. Thank you for sharing this as well. And if anybody wants to do a little bit of their own background on Debbie, she has an incredible website at DebbieEpsteinHenry.com. Check it out. She is a lawyer turned entrepreneur, author, and public speaker with expertise in careers, women, workplace dynamics, and law. Among her favorite things to do is host the DEH speaker series and a podcast, fellow podcaster, which we love. It's great. Check it out. It's called Inspiration Loves Company. Thank I love you. the name. Thank you. And your guests are great. Thank and you. your questions are great. Um, where she invites thought leaders to explore with her how to do and be better at life, work, and everything in between. So awesome. So welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Again, I'm thrilled. So one of the reasons, and we were just talking about this before we kind of hit record, that I'm so excited to talk to you tonight is that you're the first business person on our show to not have a physical brick and mortar business, which is so interesting because it kind of, you're living here on the North Fork and developing your business and doing what you love in a really inspiring way. And that's how I met you at the women's, one of the women's networking meetings. Yes. And it just highlights another kind of subset of our community on the North Fork because there are so many people like you who are living here, working here, but maybe not necessarily in that capacity where you can just go walk in the shop and the bell rings and you say hi. Right. But again, we're not just working here in our home offices and sometimes traveling to other places, but also we're the customers of all your incredible guests and the shopkeepers. So and it's... it's Great it's to so know your important. customers. It is. And I actually have this, not argument, but a little bit of a point that I like to make because the North Fork is such a special place and it's attracting a, a lot of people, especially since COVID. It's always kind of this place people go, especially in a, like kind of in a crisis. And, um, you know, you get a little flack because people worry about their <coughs> environment changing, which I totally get because we right. all love it for a specific reason. But I have to say in my own experience, Cody, I don't know if you've seen this and you've probably also encountered the many people about the North Fork as well, that they're just like lovely humans and they care about the North Fork. They support local businesses. They are also taking care of the area. I, and I've just had, I've had positive experiences. Yeah, I mean, I don't think either of our businesses would be around without no, we need everybody everyone. who comes here. Kidding? And I've been pretty open about saying the same thing. Like, sure, there's always going to be a handful of people that give a certain subset a bad name, but you could, I'm sure there's locals here that people <laughs> people feel that way about. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like point. fans of sports teams or anything else. It's it's. I think it's a great thing that we've been able to, especially since COVID. I mean, you can probably speak on this, but the fact that the 
remote work has enabled people to stay out here longer. It's extended our season as a typically very seasonal area. And um, overall, I think it's a positive. And I don't think any businesses are complaining about the extra revenue that's coming because of it. Yeah, I mean, it would enable us to move here. I grew up outside in Westchester, outside of the city, and my husband grew up in Nassau County. And we always need to be really close to airports because we both traveled extensively for work. And my husband's company went fully virtual in 2020. And so suddenly we had the ability to work from anywhere and we took advantage of it. So I think that's the changing population out here. And I I very much understand and respect the concern about, you know, is this going to take away the special nature of the North Fork and also make it too crowded and et cetera. And um, and I think the reality is that people are coming and if we can be respectful and really support the local businesses and try to bring another dimension, then that's a reality of what's happening and hopefully it can be done in, in a really thoughtful way. That's, the, that's what I have seen, you know, yeah. and I agree with everything you just said. But you have such an interesting scope of the work. So I just wanted to um, start with a little bit about what you do and specifically how you transition from being an attorney, which maybe Cody has a little bit in common with, to eventually being this really influential advisor for women in law. Sure. So it was interesting. I was practicing as a lawyer in New York and my husband had an opportunity to, in Philadelphia, we moved there. And at the time, I had just had my second child. I have three sons, and it was the late 1990s, and uh, I know I'm old. And, um, <laughs> and I just was miserable practicing law. I mean, not the first miserable lawyer, <laughs> but what was so striking to me is that most of my female friends who were lawyers and also mothers, they were struggling with what I was struggling with, which is like, how do you play an integral role in your kids' lives, but also be on partnership track? And the women who had preceded us really had to make even harder choices of either not working at all and leaving the profession or going, you know, and and just forgoing having a family. And so in 1999, I sent out an email and said, hey, I'm starting this network for lawyers interested in work-life issues. The first event will be at my firm. Forward the invite, you know, to anybody who's interested. And within a couple of days, 150 people emailed me back in response. And I was like, this is a pre-viral world. And I was like, there's clearly (laughs) something going on here. And I ran that first event at my law firm, just convened 150 women. I was like, there's some need here and I'm going to try to fill it. And I hope we can bring this out because I know you have such a big entrepreneurial audience and that's really the niche here. And so much what I learned is after running those events, and I basically did it pro bono for a number of years after I had enough momentum and was kind of collecting my law firm associate salary and then stopped practicing law, started doing public speaking for a living and and the people who I had been kind of collecting this network of and started getting press, et cetera, started growing this network, which was 150 lawyers. It became over 10,000 lawyers. and ultimately grew into a second business besides the public speaking. But the idea was, rather than try to anticipate what a need is, pay attention to what other people seek you out to do, and then when you realize that the need is there, think about ways that you would be better than somebody else to fill it. Wow. I had a crazy health scare at 26, which was gave me part of the confidence to just throw caution to the wind and start two businesses and things like that. And it it really gave me permission. When I was a third year in law school, I basically started seeing, I was actually at my favorite Upper West Side diner with my husband and I started seeing dots everywhere and sort of almost like 
old fashioned photography when you see spots everywhere. And I was like, something's going down. I really don't feel well. We raced back to our apartment. He laid me down in the bed and I had a grand mal seizure. And I was raced to the emergency room and the emergency room diagnosis was a brain tumor. And there were certain things about the seizure that just didn't add up, that it was going to be a, a tumor. But we found this amazing brain surgeon in New York City and he looked at the scans and he was like, this could be, instead of a brain tumor, this very rare parasite. It's typically only found in Latin American countries. You're not the demographic, but we won't know until we, you undergo surgery. Five days post-seizure, I had brain surgery. And my parents and husband recount this magic moment where like, the brain surgeon's jogging down the hall and yells, it's a parasite, which means like, you know, she'll take some prophylactic antibiotics, but you'll be good as new. And it's such an unusual experience to have. And I was so fortunate at 26 to not only not have a brain tumor and be able to have a clean bill of health ultimately, but also to have this moment of clarity of like, I'm not going to waste my life doing things I don't want to do or engaging in relationships I don't want to have. Like it just, it gave me so much more confidence and courage to just take some smart risks in my life. So a lot of the public speaking I do now is about smart risk taking, is about, you know, really having clarity about the choices that you make in your life. And so now fast forward to 1999 when I was, you know, threw out this email and got this huge response. I was like, hey, practicing law. And, and the other piece that comes to your other question is, it's not only that I didn't like practicing law, but I didn't like the way that law controlled my life at this law firm. And so I thought, can I build a career that is both doing meaningful work that I love, but also in a way that lets me, you know, work from home and go to my son's basketball games and be a volunteer in the classroom and do all these other things that were equally important to me or more important. But it was like really marrying both the lifestyle that I wanted while making money in a business and doing meaningful work. Do you think that your experience with your healthcare, a lot of times people will find that little spark where you're a lawyer, you're not happy, and you send out this email and there's like that little, ooh, this is kind of working. And people are fired up by that. And you're, have that, like, you have a different feeling like in your soul. Like yes. I can actually be using my strengths for something that can help people and this is firing me up and I can make maybe a career out of this. But a lot of the times people will kind of straddle both because they're afraid of, taking that right that next step so maybe with what you were just saying you had this kind of like aha moment where you were like i'm not wasting any time how like do you have advice on how, how you do, might be how able to fast that? track that yes. for people that yeah. there, there are two really important aspects of this so one is being able to assess what you're good at so what your strengths are what your interests are now a lot of people can say i'm really good at this thing and i love doing this right what they don't pay attention to enough is the market need. That's the intersection. So when I sent out that email, like some people now know my business, they'll be like, oh, that was a great business idea. I was like, it really wasn't. I was like miserable and, and found that I talked to some of my female friends who were similarly situated, like on these kind of fast tracks, but not happy what they're doing. But it was when I got you know 150 responses that I'm like, that's the market need. This is tapping into something that nobody's talking about, somewhat taboo, but there's clearly a need. And so 
that's number one, is when you have something that's really lighting you up, like this was for me and your business, I know each of you and your businesses, when you have that, don't just think, hey, am I, you know, am I good at this? Do I like this? But is there a need? Is there a need on the North Fork for, you know, serving amazing seafood and having, you know, this um, and prepared food? Is there a need for that? Is there a need for this like warm, cozy, warm, you know, lovely kitchen in the heart of Mattatuck? So that's, that's the market need. So that's number one, is making sure there's that intersection of the strengths, the interests, and the market need. The second aspect of it is I talk a lot about smart risks. I don't just talk about risks. And when you talk about smart risks, what it is is how do you hedge it so that when you make that leap of faith, you know that you are on a really great trajectory. So in my case, for example, I mentioned I started, I ran that first event in 1999. I'm like, I'm on to something. Can I make this into my career? I actually spent three years slogging it away as a law firm associate, pretty unhappy, but I was basically like trying to develop a following, started to get some press attention, thought of different topics, wanted to test the market. Are people seeking me out for this kind of advice? Do I like public speaking? Are people listening to me? All that stuff. Spent three years, that's what I call piloting. And so by the time that I gave notice at my law firm, I was profitable from day one because I spent those three years it was crazy. I mean, I was raising kids and I was working as a lawyer and I was like starting this business that, you know, I wasn't making any money on. And I didn't feel, by the way, that it was right for me to charge until three years out where I was like, this is viable. This is filling a market need. So piloting is really important. And then also, if there's a way to actually get real feedback, and this is easier to do today than it is back there, like through social media, through surveying and things like that, you know, really be willing to hear the hard stuff and feedback is lousy, but if you are willing to actually do it. So one thing, like even when I started my podcast, I sent out a survey, I sent it out to like a trusted group of 50 people who I think are really smart thinkers in the various areas I was going to cover. I made it anonymous because I was like, my best friends and family and like my work colleagues, they're not going to tell me the truth. And I don't really want to hear the truth. (laughs) But you know, if it's a type survey, I can't even try to guess the handwriting. Like I got to be honest with myself. So those are some ways to just, you know, some initial thoughts about just like kind of piloting the risk. That's great advice because that constructive criticism, I mean, we're not, you know, it's a friend. It, it yeah. can be a friend if you're, you know, willing to actually listen and take your pride out of a little bit and then have an opportunity to get better. Absolutely. But along those lines, you can be really more deliberate about it. So just an example, let's say, you know, you are getting rave reviews at Loveling Kitchen, which you do. But let's say you have this inner circle of like foodies you really trust and you say to them like, you know, you guys good with the menu and everybody is going to be like, it's awesome, you know. But if you said to them instead, we're going to take two things off the menu uh, next season and what would those, if you had to pick two to strike from the menu, what would they be? And if you had to put two new things on the menu, what what would they be? Now, then they're going to follow, you're going to find out by the way, which are the worst two things in the menu? And of course, people have different tastes. But if you ask, you know, 20 people that question and you keep on hearing about such and such salad, you're like, okay, that's the worst salad. Thank you. You know what I mean? And so there's a way to do that. Or if you're like working on a team, you know, if you're leading, you know, at bronze, right, you're, you're leading the, the, the store and um, you have an issue with somebody who's just a poor performer. By the way, they know they're a poor performer, but for one reason or another, it's like so hard to get good help. You don't want to lay that person off, right? 
you could say to them, like, you know, we're really investing in our talent. And if there are like two things in the next year that you think you could do to really up your game, what would they be? Like, they're going to be like, you know, I'm not friendly enough behind the counter and I'd love to get more comfortable, uh, you know, talking to different customers. And then instead of you being like the mean boss who's like, you got to step up and be, you know, more friendly to customers, you can be like, oh my God, let's strategize about that. Let's think about it. So suddenly you're taking feedback and you're an ally in it as opposed to being a foe. That's great advice. Yeah, totally. We had a great meeting once where I actually just asked everyone what they hate doing. Instead of being like, you know, how can we do things better and have it kind of, I was like, what do you hate doing? What slows you down? What just drags your day? What just, when someone orders it, you're like, no. And we got such great feedback from that. And it was just changed our whole game. We'd like ended up changing our whole menu, the way we take orders, everything. And I think that's a testament to you as a leader that people would actually want to tell you that or be able to tell you that. Because in some situations, you still kind of will get the softball response. Yeah, so that, and could, that happens sometimes yeah. still. But you could even like, even if you just tweak that a bit and said like, I think we could be running a more efficient shop here. If you could improve the process in one way, what would it be? And if you went around to the team of people Everybody would say that. And it seems like, okay, I'm not lazy about, you know, clearing that table or whatever. I'm not worried about outing myself, let's say, about that as much as much like, oh, if we have a standardized way of clearing those tables, it can do it differently. So sometimes switching things up like that can really help. It's a great conversation, and I think it's really useful because so many of the business owners that I talk to on the day-to-day, they they have so much pride in what they want to, what they do. And the people, the teams that they're building and that culture they're creating they want it to be positive and they want to keep their staff and have everyone have this balance and sustainability of liking what they do and believing in the work they do. And just that concept alone, I think is really great for other business owners to hear because there is a better way to lead your team. And there is a better way to, you know, kind of pull that information out in a constructive way to say, how can we do things better? The best way I found as a leader. So just to continue a little bit my story. So I, started this public speaking business, that network of 150 lawyers that became 10,000 plus lawyers. Ultimately, I teamed up with two other co-founders and we started a recruiting business. And it really morphed into this network of lawyers I had developed. Like a lot of these lawyers were like women who were, you know, had amazing backgrounds, but wanted to work more flexibly. And we started a business where we started lending out lawyers to different companies around the country. The network grew from 10,000 plus to over 35,000 plus. And it was really cool. And we ultimately were bought. And we had a corporate team that was 26 of us that worked and ran the business, but everybody worked virtually. And this was like pre, way pre-pandemic. Um, we, you know, we started the business in, in 2011. And so we were having this corporate team work virtually. We're doing like video calls and the technology was not nearly as good. (laughs) Anyway, the reason why I'm talking about all this, one thing really that evolved from it is that everybody worked from home and everybody was like feeling like they had to be super responsive on email all the time. And the number one policy that we instituted at the company that people loved is we said, you're not allowed to send internal emails on the weekends unless it's a client emergency. So if it's something that's client sensitive, you have to do it, but there's no internal communications on the weekends. And the reason why it was so effective is the two, my two co-founders and I 
we never communicated by email. We had, we were close with all of the employees. Like we would text them and stuff like that. So like if there was a client sensitive issue, we would text them. So they're not like following their emails all weekend, but there were no internal emails. And that idea of leaders modeling the behavior that they want to create and that's the way to create an effective culture because we were like, we value the fact that you need time to regroup on the weekends, you know, not dealing with stuff that you can, and we, by the way, we started it by like writing like Monday, you know, Monday morning, look at this. And we put that in the subject line, but then people would open it yeah. and perseverate all weekend. Yeah. Like it just didn't work. So as leaders, like modeling that behavior is huge. Oh. How did you not, I don't want to say learn all this. That's so generic, but have the faith in yourself to constantly be adaptable and continue to learn how to lead people. And was it just trial and error? Was it networking? Was it, you know, constantly being with different, I mean, your network obviously expanded pretty rapidly once you started it. Like, and then also have the confidence to believe in what you're doing is the right way and also successful. So I've made a ton of mistakes. Um, and I continue to make a ton of mistakes. Um, I, do think one of the things that's personally informed a lot of my learning is a big piece of my public speaking is interviewing experts. And so, for example, we were talking earlier about feedback. So I interviewed for, I have a speaker series you mentioned. I interviewed this woman, um, Kim Scott. She's a New York Times bestselling author on what she calls radical candor. It's about how to give honest feedback and how to get honest feedback. So for me, one of the ways I've learned is I read these books and then, if I'm lucky, get the opportunity to interview different experts. And it's completely self-interest. Like I'm like, okay, I want to learn more about confidence. And then I interviewed the author, co-author of The Confidence Code. And I'm like, okay, we need that. So I I really... um, that's coming back to when you think about your life as an entrepreneur, if you're lucky, you've got this intersection of strengths, interests, and market need. So I have really, to answer your question, to get the expertise to be able to advise others, I'm constantly trying to draw on the expertise of other people. We were talking about before, like Gretchen Rubin, happiness expert. She and I were college classmates. I've you know, interviewed her on all five of her New York Times bestselling books, and I'm like, I'm always trying to learn more about happiness, and, and that's been part of my thing, is just trying to, to and work life is a big area of focus for me. It's kind of like the, um, you know, sometimes you, you see the, um, you know, the anorexic um, nutritionist. Like, people study what they're trying to learn, yeah. and so, like, that's kind of been me. I'm interested in work life, so I'm, like, interviewing those experts, and I trying always, to gather always, information that way. I always think that just approaching anything in that like sense of curiosity creates just like such an open-minded, joyful way of really authentically, sincerely being curious about what someone is all about. I think that's actually kind of how this even started because totally. we. Yeah. I love to chat with other business owners about their struggles and how they learned and what's working for them. And um, I'm really curious to see how people have started and how they've... Um, Chrome, and, yeah. yeah, and it just becomes so. I'm so interested in all of that, so it does help to be curious. Yeah, and then my mom always says, "You get like the people you hang around with." So I guess if you <laughs> surround yourself with a bunch of experts, eventually. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I think the other thing I think curiosity is huge, and I think related to that, which really helps, is having humility. So when you make a mistake, just own up to it and be yeah. like, "I'm really sorry. I just I screwed that up. I didn't handle that right." I was being overly self-promotional. I was not being thoughtful enough. Whatever it is, I've offended in all those areas and more. Like, just to be able, particularly, 
to a team you're working with and you're leading to be able to say like that that wasn't handled I, well. That's great. It advice. wasn't even on a business <clears throat> culture growth type podcast that I was listening to recently, but somebody said humility is remaining teachable, and I thought that was such a perfect mm-hmm. perfect summary of you know remaining teachable. I love that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just never thinking you have all the answers, or you know, and being able to take feedback like we talked about is so critical. Yeah, you know? I think another thing that really helps, and yeah, it really helps both in public speaking, but also just leading generally is getting personal because people sometimes feel, and this is less the case since the pandemic because you know we're all, if you're on Zoom and things like that, you're in people's houses and you have entree in a way that you didn't before and people are working much differently now. But if you can be personal and share pieces of yourself, a lot of times, you know, you may have somebody who works for you at, at Bronze who's like, you know, it, it's a different type of person, like not somebody you would naturally connect with on the work front, but then you happen to mention an interest, you know, whether it's boating or fishing or, you know, basketball or whatever, and you mention that and it becomes a connection. And sometimes that just letting somebody in into a different way, maybe it's about your kids, maybe it's volunteer work you do, it doesn't matter, but letting people in more into who you are as a person, there's many more opportunities to connect. And I think that really helps in leadership as well. I think I struggled with that in the beginning because I felt like I, you know, and I never did this, but in the beginning I was like, oh, I've got to like know what's going on and have all the answers and be there for everybody and have this kind of like boss cap, you know? And then I was like, God, this is like so uncomfortable because I felt like I was like crawling out of my own skin and it is so true when you can just kind of like drop that facade and I think the pandemic was a big thing where I was like listen you guys I am in over my head right I do not know what to do so I'm going to need everybody's help but we're in it together and we can we can figure it out but I think along those lines what's underscoring your remarks and I think is so critical also in leadership is using delegation as a means to empower as opposed to a means to offload. And so being overwhelmed in the pandemic and having all these customers and life is crazy all of a sudden, you rather than feel like, oh my God, I'm not showing them all together by empowering some of your other colleagues, like they're gonna rise to the occasion and how great for them to develop them, develop their careers. And so think about it that way is like, how can you be more effective as a delegator, but also use it as a way to grow other people? It just flips the script on that so much because we talk about a lot delegating yeah. with our you know, guests. Get, I was just going to say, I'd love to get, that's something I'm always so fascinated as you, so as you start this business and start to grow, how did you, I'm sure leaning on other people and trying to gather as much knowledge as you can, but can you speak a little more on the, your experience personally with, okay, I'm going to give this portion of my business up to somebody else and, right. and here we go. So that came up more in running this recruiting business. The name of the company was Bliss Lawyers, and I had these two partners who we ran it for nine years. We competed during those years with a company called Axiom, and they ultimately acquired us February 5th of 2020, like six weeks before the pandemic. It was crazy. Wow. Um, And I think it's very hard, and I think that's probably one of the things I'm not as good at about, I, I feel like a sense of ownership. It's hard for me to let go of things and I, I'm a perfectionist and so I, it, I struggle with it. One of the things that I think helps people kind of move to the next stage and being more effective in terms of delegation is they do become so busy that it's like, okay, if I devote that time to that project, I'm gonna devote you know 40% of the time, whereas I can give this to somebody junior who's gonna yeah. be excited who's going to spend like 80% and do a better job. And so I think part of that 
luxury of growth is it forces you to get a little more uncomfortable about letting some things go. And then, by the way, again, piloting is really helpful here. You don't have to, like, give over that whole chunk of that whole project that you're really kind of feeling ownership over. Just do one, like, really kind of contained breakout of a project and be like, hey, I just want you to work on this. Can you come back to me in a week? And then that person's, like, so psyched because they just got this opportunity to really prove themselves and they do such a great job and you're like they can run with this and think about things (laughs) yeah and and i have a um an assistant who's worked for me for 15 years she's really phenomenal and her job description has totally evolved over the time she does so much stuff better than me i can't even begin to (laughs) think about you know we're complementary of each other and um and I do think what helps in figuring this sort of thing out is periodically to sort of inventory what the responsibilities of the business are and think, what am I good at? Where am I really indispensable? And where am I dispensable? So when we were growing Bliss Lawyers, part of what I was in charge of is building a business development team. I used to sell a lot of the business in the company. And we then started having these different people divided by region who were in charge of different geographies of selling the business, uh, selling business you know, for our clients. And that really became much more effective than me flying all around all the time to try to do that. So thinking about the responsibilities and demands of the business and then thinking about like, where do you bring the most value and what's not a good use of your time? And when you can separate that out, you can be much smarter in how the business is run. Oh man. That's great insight. I need to like go home and do that. (laughs) Like, yeah. Could you, I mean... You, and by the way, like make a list. you really do. You have to look at what the operations of the business are. Yeah. Sometimes, by the way, if you have a website that's current, you can actually, and I'll do this sometimes, go to the like, descriptive parts of my website and be like, okay, is all this stuff still what I want to be putting out there? And am I allocating time and resources the most appropriate way to these different aspects of the business? Because we all kind of do that at one point, but then before you know it, Five years goes by, and things are completely different. You're spending your time differently. You have a, you have a different team, or a better team, or a more seasoned team, and yeah. and your priorities change, and the goals and the of your business has change. There's more people out here. The COVID hits. It's you know yeah. constantly changing. We're I'm I'm personally going through this at Bronze right now. I'm, I'm I've had a sales rep since I came back to the company four or five years ago, and I'm about to hand it off to somebody who decided to join us for a time, which we're thrilled about. And our CFO is moving to Florida. She's still working remotely, but I'm taking on some of her roles. So it's like, I'm personally going through this right now. So it's right. awesome to hear but more advice. I, I mean, I think the other thing is, and you referenced this before, Carolyn, about, you know, the great ideas you got from your team. Your team is like, they're boots on the ground. They're so valuable. They're mm. interacting with people that you're not always totally. able to touch. Completely. And so to be able to sometimes just have a team meeting and have an icebreaker and say like, what's one thing? that we could be doing better in this business and just do a rapid fire or have people submit it anonymously in like a little suggestion box, however you want to elicit the information. But you've got great ideas that you could be tapping into. And it's not something that you do once in a while, like, okay, you know, post COVID, like, or whatever, like six months post COVID, the business is looking very different. You know, have you done it since? Well, it's like, Ideally, every six months, you're like, okay, we got this season coming up and like, what's new? What's fresh? What, you know, what do we want to dispense with? And, and by the way, your customers see it. Like how fun, like I'm, I'm going into bronze and buying like my, I like the prepared soups and things like that. You know, we'll get in the freezer drawer sometimes, whatever. And like, I, you know, 
I, I'm psyched to see like a new mix there, you know, yeah. like whatever. I mean, it's it's something that you can project out and celebrate of your team as well. And it's it's fun. Like people are looking for fun. It is nice to have some fun with it. And I, I honestly think that's what happens when you have those conversations and those systems because it it's, opens up creativity. And when people feel like they have that voice and that, um, you know, just, yeah. yeah, like they're invested and they do care. <laughs> and if, if everyone were to, if, if imagine if all the North Fork businesses like did this every six months, like the service would be like amazing. We, you <laughs> right, know what I mean? Right. Like not, it, and it's hard because as an owner operator, you know, you really are doing so many things. So it does get, I have, I have these goals to do this, but then all of a sudden it's like August and I was like, oh yeah, I never got around to that, that checklist. That but you, you know do. what, you can also, the checklist can be daunting. We all have really long lists and, yep. you know, we never get to them and we're passing over day to day, you know, but sometimes you can get a little broader and, and maybe try to empower the team with a message. Like if you could, you know, it's just the beginning of 23, right? If there's one thing that you could try to achieve that would be a really powerful goal of the business over the next year, you know, could you capture that in a word? Maybe it's a theme that you, you know, maybe you feel like people are getting grouchy or whatever. And, and so maybe it's just like the word welcome. Like mm -hmm. you just want your customers to feel welcome, your, you know, your teammates to feel like welcome and part of the team, whatever it is, I'm just making that up. But, you know, messaging and communication like that can be inspiring to team members too, because they want to be a part of something. And again, customers want to come in and feel that same positivity. That's great advice. Totally. And I think like you said it, you do. No, I mean, I always say when I come in here, it's a reflection of Carolyn because the staff is like friendly rosy. and helpful yeah. and yeah. cheery and they, you feel like they want you to be here. And it's, yep. it's the same idea. It, it trickles all the way down when you do really that, does. You know? Again, it's like that leader modeling that and you're normalizing that behavior. Like, okay, you're supposed to smile and like welcome people and act bubbly and it's not superficial. That's just the, the positivity that you have. So, and Completely. people really are taking your lead in that. And that's a really valuable thing you can do as a business owner. It's a, it's a nice thought to have. I'm not alone though. Cause I really have a great team. So, I mean, it goes both ways cause I lean on them for that as so much too. So it's, yeah. it's a win-win. Can, can we backtrack a little bit when sure. you, you're obviously now advising people on how to take smart risks and mm -hmm. grow and decide to change directions in their careers. Can, you just talk a little bit about your from the first networking event where you had 150 people to three years later, you're saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, just your thought process and that first big smart risk of your right. life and dive a little into that. Yeah. One of the things I did is, so there were various indicators that I was onto a topic that people weren't really covering, which is the time was like work life, which wasn't even really a term of art in 1999. So you're, you're way ahead of your time and, a lot of the stuff. Yeah. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, this is a business idea. It was just like, this is what my friends and I are talking about, like anybody else unhappy, yeah. you know? And I was such a like egocentric New Yorker. I like n was a new transplant to Philadelphia. And when I got these 150 emails, I was like, I didn't even know there was like 150 people in this town, let alone like lawyers <laughs> unhappy, you know, like it was just so funny. But I had some different indicators. So one was that flood of emails and that first event where I was like, there's an energy here, like we're talking about things people are not talking about. But another thing I did, again, sort of assessing the market interest, is I, the, the local legal paper did a feature on this group that had no name that was like ballooning and they interviewed me for it, whatever. I took that article and I asked the marketing department of my law firm at the time and said like, here are my top 50 news organizations. 
Um, and I wrote down the names, you know, and said, like, can you try to find me what would be like a work-life contact at everyone that maybe would be interested in this kind of story? And I sent, this sounds again archaic, but <laughs> I mailed the article that was from the legal paper to these 50 news organizations. And NPR called and Morning Edition said, we want to feature you and the chair of your law firm. I was like, hold on a second. I ran down the hall. I was like, you know, will you be on, Ralph, will you be on this with me? He's like, <laughs> okay. So anyway... NPR came to Philly and ran one of these events in um, 2000, January of 2000. And that put me on the national map. And I was like, in fact, nobody is talking about this. Yeah. And the fact that NPR wants to feature this on Morning Edition. Clearly, clearly diving into some new territory that nobody yeah. was talking about. And yeah. so that was another thing I was like, okay, like if they're featuring this. And, and then from there, I started getting significant press like, New York Times and all these, you know, big, big publications. And I knew that I was onto something. So it was, uh, it was like, I'd put stuff out there and then I'd get feedback. But another important thing to think about for entrepreneurs listening is that I think a lot of people hang back and don't take that step mm -hmm. because they, um, they feel like they don't have like the the best or the biggest idea and like a lot of people now feel like oh all the ideas are used up right it does feel that way sometimes it That's does so it does but but what i would say is you don't have to be original in fact most ideas are not original but what you have to figure out is can you offer something different that you can fill the need in the market that you've demonstrated better than somebody else. And by the way, it's not meaning that you have to be the exclusive one. I remember when I was starting running public speaking events and somebody actually who was kind of in a similar space who I was not aware of approached me and she wasn't very nice and I was very upset about it. My husband, I talked to him about it and he's like, he's like, he said to me very simply, he said, competition demonstrates a market need. And I always think about that because it's not like you have to be the only, it's just you have to <coughs> offer something where you have to be the one who can offer something good, you know, great seafood, amazing venue for, for great food, right? But you have to do it in such a way that there's a, there's a personal touch. There's something that you're offering that's different and distinguishable that, and again, like I, I came to this interview tonight early and I love being in Mattatuck and I like went to my, all my favorite food shops right along here, but I'm a regular customer here. And actually because Love Lane Kitchen is here, I'm also frequenting these other places. It's like a, it's a gravitational pull. So it's really figuring that kind of thing out. Um, I hope that answers your yes, question. That no, was an, I mean, a little bit of competition I think is, is good. And, you know, sometimes that that can seem, I think if you have kind of a thought of like lack, maybe that could be fearful, but that's not a good place to, I think, operate from. I think you always have to kind of think of like abundance. And right. sometimes my staff will come in with something that someone copied us on just like verbatim. Right. And I'll just look at them and be like, there's plenty more where that came from. Yeah. We got plenty of that. Yeah. Don't worry about you it. You know what? It's all good. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a scarcity mentality that is dangerous. Yeah, I don't and like I, to subscribe to that. Right. And I think if you instead embrace generosity and importantly, embrace generosity in a way that is extending yourself to people, not expecting a return, but being open to the fact that when you extend yourself generously, opportunities present. Um, I, I wrote a piece a number of years ago called Make Your Ask a Give, which is one of the things that I talk about a lot in terms of relationship building. And what I 
what I mean by make your ask a give is a lot of times in business, you feel like you have your hand out, like you, you, need, you need help with something, right? And you feel like you're making some ask of people. But if you can pause instead and think about how you can be a resource to people, then they'll come to you because they will want to be connected with you with the offering that you're going to provide for them. And then it's much easier to make that ask because, you know, at that point, it's like, you know, you've, you've extended yourself already. And that's so powerful because it, it's just creating more opportunity for people and just a better platform for people to be. Right. I love that. I do have um, another theme that comes up is finding balance mm-hmm. on this podcast, which um, I'm slowly figuring out maybe is just a total like illusion. But um, <laughs> you speak on this. One of the titles of one of the articles that I was hoping you might be able to speak on was um, having it all, the myths, opportunities, and trade-offs. Right. So when I mentioned when I started doing public speaking, I, this network was like 10,000 plus lawyers. And I started getting emails from these lawyers from around the country. And I used to call them the Dear Debbie emails. It was like all of their trials and tribulations, you know, and it was like, like, oh my God. Yeah. Had I known I'd be much smarter. But, um, what I ended up doing with these emails of, of all the challenges that it was mostly women lawyers were having is I thought we can't just talk about work life what we want to do is try to break out categories of where the work-life challenges are. So if you know more specifically what the work-life challenge is, you'll be more effective at tackling it. And so what I found is there's sort of five areas that typically people are having work-life challenges are having, and here they go. One is lack of predictability. And actually, I feel like of all the challenges, this is among one of the harder ones. If you have lack of predictability and control, it contributes to a lot of dissatisfaction, frankly, as a lawyer. Stress, yeah. yeah, total stress. Like Uncertainty. When I was a litigator, I was like, not only do I not like the substantive work, but I have no control. I could get that call on Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'm not going to what I thought I was doing, et cetera. So lack of predictability and control is one. Two is lack of flexibility. This is something that's less relevant now because many of us have a lot more flexibility. But you guys, as, as shop owners, like sometimes you just have to be on site, you know, and sometimes more than you want to be, that kind of thing. That lack of flexibility of where you work, um, or perhaps it's the hours that you work, you know, the fact that it's, you know, you're both in weekend businesses, that's really hard. So, so number two is lack of flexibility and control. Excuse me first one is lack of predictability and control and the second one's lack of flexibility third is just the sheer number of hours like some of us are just grinding it out all the time and the sheer number of hours is just breaking us and so that's number three you're both looking like sort of depleted so there's gonna be you keep on nodding all right we're three for three for a second hold on a second okay so we're not there yet okay so we'll have a thousand Okay, I'm not going to depress you further, but a little bit more maybe. Okay, so number four is actually not being off call. And like the, you know, people used to like on vacations, they would travel to the ends of the earth so that, you know, they wouldn't have good cell service. Now the problem is that the cell service is so good. Like we've got to actually figure this out. That used to be a trick of mine. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah, so that notion of like, you even think about a traditional old fashioned doctor, like somebody steps in those doctor's shoes, you're off call or you're on call. The problem with so much of our work now is like, you never personally are actually replaced, particularly again, as like owners of a business. And then the fifth, is about proximity and 
that's a lot of like, again, this is less relevant now post-pandemic or hopefully post-pandemic um, that, you know, you have to be like near a daycare facility or you have to be near like an elder care facility. You have to be traveling here or that. This has become less of a constraint. But I mentioned those five categories because I still really feel that when you are having work-life challenges, chances are they're in one or more of yeah. these five buckets. And what you do want to think about is where do I have room? So we were talking before about delegation, like, and you were, you know, um, you're nodding your head about, you know, you're sort of, these are all things that you're mm -hmm. challenged by. But if you said like, okay, sheer number of hours, that's one thing that's just breaking you right now. I'd say, you know, hopefully you have an amazing team and what you want to be doing is looking at the responsibilities of the business and thinking, okay, how do we delegate this work out better? And again, it's not like you're signing it away and you're like mm -hmm. disappearing, but maybe initially you're giving a discrete project to one of your high performers and saying like, hey, I think, again, not like um, I'm so overloaded, I can't handle it anymore, but instead like, I really think you're poised to take things to the next level. Here's a project I'm excited about for you to take on, run with it, come back with me in a week and tell me how it's gone you know, that kind of thing. Or maybe you don't give so much of a drum roll because what if that person doesn't really perform? Maybe you give that discrete project, say, hey, I think this is a great opportunity for you. Come back to me in two weeks or whatever it is. And then if that person's high performer, then you take away one of those major work-life challenges, you know, that kind of thing. Or maybe, you know, you've got a number two in the business who you're really trying to cultivate. And you're really, that person is really, really great. And, you know, you want to be thinking about succession planning, even though you guys are both super young but you're developing that person. And then you take that really much needed vacation, give that number two the opportunity to really run the show that week. So it's no not like, again, you're like handing over the business, but you're saying, you know what? I need to be off call. This is really important for me. And maybe it's a long weekend to start. Maybe it's a week, you know, in the US, some other vacation, but you're grooming that and you're testing out. But the first part of all of this is a level of self-awareness where you can say to yourself, okay, really, what is important to me in terms of work-life issues. I've got the flexibility or I've got the predictability because I'm the boss, I can leave. You know, whatever it may be, but you've got to first have the self-awareness to know, okay, what is really, really difficult for me? And then where can I make some change? And I can guarantee you, everybody can make some change. I bet that there's a lot of people that can relate to all of that. Yeah, and how did you personally navigate those challenges after you left the law firm? You have three sons, right? And then you're starting this business that I'm sure starts growing pretty rapidly. How did you right. go through that personally? So, one of the things that was really important to me, by the way, is, is first of all, I, I stopped at the law firm. I, I stopped working at the office, and so when I started my own business, I have worked from home. So, like everybody is saying, who who became you know remote workers in the pandemic, everybody was saying that's such a big transition. I've really been doing that since the early 2000s. So that was. <clears throat> For me, it's funny, there's this, apparently some old study that was like, there's a strong correlation between those of us who like worked on their beds in college and never worked in the library and those of us who now work from home. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm that person, like I always worked on my bed. Yeah. But anyway, um, so for me, being, I always have traveled for work because I speak at retreats and events. So I actually have loved that because it's like neat, I'll go to some cool retreat, stay overnight in some hotel, whatever. But then the other days I'm like, in my yoga pants, like working from home. And so that was part of what worked for me is that I wasn't like at an office when I wasn't traveling. So that was one thing. For me, I'm a really early riser. And so I have written a couple books. Like I wrote those books basically before my kids got up. And I, and I used to, I, I 
use this term um, that I talked about in my first book about, I call it bus stop hours. I think a lot of people want, parents want to work bus stop hours. So I used to like work before my kids got up. I would drop them at the bus and then I would like pound it out from like, you know, the minute <laughs> that bus left. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then I would be a basketball. I would be a chess club and what all that stuff. And then a lot of times they would go to bed and I would work. So like mm-hmm. it was not, I mean, during those years, those were, those were the hardest I've ever worked. I mean, really, really tough. Not but much parenting. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh but I was trying to really capitalize on my strengths, which was like I'm more clear-headed in the morning and then be on site with them. And then, you know, even as they got older, like they had homework, like I'd sit at the kitchen table, they would do their homework. I had my computer there. Like, so I tried to really, as they, as I was raising them to try to have my schedule mirror theirs. And just incidentally, I think we, you know, we had talked a little bit, Carolyn, about role models and stuff like that. My mom went back and got her PhD at night once I was two years old. I'm the youngest of three. And my recollection, my mom initially as a psychologist used to work at an elementary school. And so I think I really modeled that bus stop hour kind of idea around my mother because I was like, she took me to sports, she took me to violin, but like she was, you know, she basically, I was like, she's busy during the day and she's doing her thing, but like then she was at the bus stop. And so I think when I became a mother, I was like, how do I have a, a career that I feel like I can hopefully make some impact, but also play the integral role in my kids' lives that I wanted. And not just waiting around until you have the time of making it a point day to day. Yeah. That's a great checklist to have, though, yeah. to check in with yourself and have that awareness. Yeah. I do think having friends who are going through it simultaneously really helps and to have some accountability with people you can talk to about it. You yeah. must have just had such a profoundly positive effect on so many women's lives that were struggling and then found lawyers. List, so list lawyers. Because how cool they must have been like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. What was interesting was the network of lawyers I originally created was mostly women who were similarly situated to me who wanted to work flexibly, like had good credentials, but like wanted to be more involved in their kids' lives, wanted a nonlinear career. And the legal profession is like the most linear profession. Like they were just so intolerant of somebody wanting to do something different. So what was very synergistic is once I co-founded Bliss Lawyers, Bliss Lawyers was a company that put lawyers in companies on temporary engagement. So it was like, here's this woman who like <clears throat> didn't go back from maternity leave and then she was getting put to work at some company. So it was like temporary in-house counsel or something? Yes, that's okay. exactly right, yeah. And, but they were, they were actually our W-2 employees, so they were like well compensated and well positioned. And a lot of them, it was like their re-entry back to the profession. So it was really doing meaningful work to get women empowered again. And we were doing it in a way that was like flexible for our team. So it was it was um, it was majority owned. Uh, excuse me, majority women owned business. I owned it with one one of my partners was a woman, and so we were you know doing a lot of the things that we were espousing for our clients. And I think that's another theme that I think can be helpful in the entrepreneurs listening. That it's similar to the idea of modeling certain behavior as a leader, but we were pushing out these ideas about being supportive of, of employees and getting women back to work and things like that. And we were doing it in our business and it was consistent with our messaging. So, so rewarding. Yes, yeah, really rewarding. And again, there was a market need that was getting filled. So it wasn't, you know, these were for-profit businesses, but we were able to marry the 
impact work that we wanted to do with the business opportunity. That's awesome. And had, and now eventually you guys sold, you said. So yeah. how did that, you grew to a point and was that always kind of the end plan or just kind of happened organically? And then it's, talk about that decision to just kind of yeah, let go. <laughs> it was really interesting. So the company Axiom um, was our biggest competitor. And when we devised our business, we basically looked at the success and brilliance of their model and said, how can we do it differently and better? And so that's how we built our business. What's interesting is two times before we actually were acquired, we were approached by competitors who were interested in buying us. So we knew we were a target. Um, and for a variety of reasons, those two prior opportunities um, didn't ultimately end in a, yeah. in a purchase. But in the fall of 2019, we were approached by um, the private equity firm that owns Axiom. And they said they had just bought Axiom. And they said, um, in all of our due diligence, Bliss lawyers kept on coming up in our conversations. Will you talk to us? And we started talking to them. And then in February 5th, they acquired us. So the two, um, many of our employees who worked on the corporate team at Bliss Lawyers still work at uh, Axiom. And, and many of them did go over. And some of them are there, some of them not. But um, my two partners and I were executive consultants to Axiom for a year transitioning the business. And then as of February of 21, we are no longer affiliated, but very supportive of their work. Um, and so I, prior to co-founding the recruit, Bliss was really a recruiting company. Prior to doing that, I was doing public speaking and now that's what my focus is. So, um, and that's really my love, by the way. That's really what I love to do. And obviously that February, 2020 to February 2020 was a somewhat tumultuous time in the world. Oh my <laughs> so, God. Well, 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 I don't know if the acquisition would have gone through if it was six yeah. weeks later. I mean, we were so yeah. fortunate yeah. at the, the timing and who oh knew, gosh. of course. You know. So you obviously were already kind of used to working remotely yes. and that whole kind of work, work model. And then talk about starting to really focus in on the public speaking aspect of which we're really passionate about, obviously right. you can tell. Um, and growing that remotely. How did that right. kind of come to be? So I was fortunate that I really had, I started doing um, public speaking really full time starting the early 2000s. So I had that work and, and part of how I grew that work and my husband, I can really um, thank him for this is he is a former professional writer and he said at a certain point with the public speaking, he's like, you need to write a book because you just, it's, it's just a credential that you really need at a certain point. I had written maybe 25 articles or so at that point. So my first book came out in 2010 and that really, I did a book tour and like that really, um, kind of helped me in terms of building a public speaking identity. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I co-authored with my bliss, uh, co-founders, a second book in 2015. Um, so I did a second book tour for that as well. But, um, what was interesting is prior to the pandemic, I was probably averaging, um, I don't know, maybe about 50 talks a year, client talks a year. Um, and then in those were all on site, you know, various locations. I work in the US, I work abroad. And um, then the pandemic happened and obviously everything shut down. Now what's interesting is I would say about 50% of my speaking is still on various video platforms. Um, And that's actually another new interesting dimension to me. Um, I'm still doing work abroad. I was in Madrid and London for talks in October, which was awesome. I got to bring my mother, which was (laughs) such a treat. Oh, great. Um, But I actually like the fact that 
some of my work is a some of my client work. Yeah. 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 So, um, and my speaker spirit series, which used to be live in New York in person, we've grown so much actually through doing it virtually and we have more international reach and then everything's recorded and then people cannot get access that we're like, for now, we're not planning to go back in person unless, you know, circumstances change and we yeah. feel, you know, that's better it's funny for our that audience. You would think that not being able to travel, you, you're, oh, I'm going to be hampered by this, but it's actually been a model of growth and yeah. opp- opportunity. You well, know. the other, in- exactly, the other interesting thing is I've worked for one organization as a consultant for an international network of law firms for several years, and during the pandemic, I was doing focus groups, and it's like in Asia and all these different places, and I was like doing all this international work, and I was just like, okay, I have to get up at six for that presentation <laughs> rather than whatever. So it just changed, and one of the things that I think you know, you were saying this before, Carolyn, about curiosity, um, is you never know what opportunities present. I mean, in some respects, because the technology has gotten so much better, you can get access to people, you know, in terms of an international audience much more readily than it used to be to like all get to this certain conference. Now, of course, it's so much more fun to be there in person. And I definitely love that. But it also is really great to be, you know, in my home office in Southold and be <laughs> conducting facilitations with, you know, Europe, I mean, or wherever, you know, and it's how pretty nice fun to be able to have more of a broad audience to it's such a gift and it's such a great lesson. And your message is so great for so many people. And then it's just a, you know, you just reach more of an audience. So it's a win-win. It just makes the world a better yeah, place. <laughs> totally. We need more people like that. Wow. I think you guys are doing wonderful things. And I think it's awesome that you put this podcast together. I just think raising awareness about North Fork businesses and really the inner workings and how the community can support each other is just such a positive thing. It does come from the conversations that Cody and I have both had together and with our rich just even the people that come in and other business owners. It is just such a special place. And I loved having you on specifically because you are here on the North Fork, even though you don't have a business, but you're conducting this incredible work here and supporting us. So thank you so much for that. And it's just so nice to hear you speak. And it's so nice to hear the work that you've done. It's really magical and really important. And I'm really happy to have met you. And thank you so much for coming. Well, I'm not going anywhere. So don't be saying goodbye. I'm going to be like loitering around each of your businesses and everybody else's I can. And thank you again, both of you. It's really been a pleasure. And um, if I can help or do anything or brainstorm with you, I'd love to. Oh my gosh. Tell us where um, (laughs) our listeners can find you, whether it's social media, website, et cetera. DebbieFsteinHenry.com is my website. And I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram. And um, that's it. And having coffee at Loveland Kitchen. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And And brunch. (laughs) And I'm getting takeout from Bronx. There you go. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks, Debbie. Awesome. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to tell a friend and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch on Instagram at For the Love of Business Podcast. Our email is for the love of business podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Cody. And I'm Carolyn. And this was For the Love of Business.